Well, I, I just mentioned it, and I will tell you, just as I was uh, getting ready to put my final touches on uh, this sermon, uh, Wednesday morning, I, I received a call from Brian Eastling. Uh, Brian informed me that his dad, Tom Eastling, had passed away. For those of you who don't know, Tom was a, a missionary that we supported at Pleasant Hill Community Church. Tom Eastling actually grew up at Pleasant Hill Community Church, went away to a church camp sponsored by the church, and that's where he received Christ. Charlene and I first met Tom and Ruth Eastling when we were in Indiana all those years ago, a brand new married couple at uh, a Pleasant View Bible Church, uh, and um, that's where we first met Tom and Ruth. Uh, I reflected uh, a little bit about that. You know, Tom taught me how to drive the church bus. I already knew how to drive the stick shift, but driving the bus was a different animal. Uh, and uh, what we had the privilege of doing is being at both ends of their missionary career. They were commissioned at Pleasant View Bible Church while we were there, uh, not quite on staff yet. And when they retired, they came here for the retirement ceremony just a few years ago. So Charlene and I were there when they left to go serve with Wycliffe, and we were here when they wrapped that ministry up. And as I thought about Tom, his passing was peaceful and quiet, which is really reflective of who he was. And, and I was just thinking of those words by Paul. I had just been reflecting on them that would have been read by Phoebe to the house churches at Rome that begins the passage that we're in today. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you have peace with God? That's such an easy question to ask. It's an easy question to ask. It's a more difficult question to answer for so many. You see, it's, it's one of those questions that kind of spurs other questions into our mind. What is peace, really? How does one really know if they have peace with God? Uh, sometimes I think some of us feel like the description written many years ago by Henry David Thoreau in a little book that he produced called Civil Disobedience and Other Essays. And in that book he says, the mass of men lead quiet lives of quiet desperation. We live in a time with information at our fingertips. We live in a time with wealth beyond what anyone could have imagined in 1849 when Henry David Thoreau wrote those words. We live in a time with conveniences and creature comforts, and yet we live in a time of sometimes not so quiet desperation. We live in a time where we've seen unrest at levels where some of us can't recall. We live at a time where there's increased anxiety, there's increased struggles with mental health. There is distrust. So what do our comforts get us? I'll show my age here. I was looking over this this morning and I thought of another group of philosophers. 
named Kansas from the 1970s who wrote, and all your money won't another minute buy. What does it get us? Do you have peace with God? As you'll recall, when we started this series, we took the book of Romans and I, I broke it down into some key questions. The first question that we've already looked at is what's wrong with this world? And, and we discovered in the first three chapters how in, in very simple terms, sin is the core issue. And, and, and you know, we, we found that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But we're now in the middle of the second question. What is the solution to the problems of this world? And we've already seen that we cannot solve the sin problem by observing rituals. We can't solve the sin problem by observing a set standard of rules. We've discovered that reality, the simple reality is it's our belief in God that's the key. Now for the Jewish followers of Christ that made up the Roman church, this was a bit of a corrective for some of them because in that first century, some people believed that to be a Christian, you simply had to walk through the door of following the Jewish rituals and then you could still believe in Christ. And Paul says, no, that's not the case. And for the non-Jewish followers of Jesus, which in the Jewish world, there were two types of people in this world. There are Jews, and then there's everybody else. And they got lumped into the, the term Gentiles. And for them, what a relief to know that I don't have to go follow all those rituals. I have a door of faith open to come to Christ. So Paul begins in chapter 5 with one of the first concluding statements. And if you're not there yet, I would invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 5. And what I'm going to do, even though we've already read the passage responsively, I'm going to back up a little bit, get a kind of a running start. I want you to see what I call the connective tissue. So I'm going to pick it up at the, in 4.18 and read through chapter 5, verse 2, with, and I'm going to ignore the chapter heading. Remember, the, verses, the verse markings and the chapter headings, they're not inspired. In fact, in the original Greek, they didn't even use punctuation. And so, you know, all of that has had to be added, and our, our translators have done a pretty good job. But listen as we back up to 418 and kind of take a running start. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed, and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old. And that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God. Believing being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words it was credited to him were written for, not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness. 
for us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. What great words. What a great reminder that we are justified by faith, that, that we, have, we can have peace with God. Do you have peace with God? Because of faith first in God was evidenced by Abraham, and now we can have faith in God through Jesus Christ, we can have peace with God. And true peace with God is characterized by a new relationship. In the first five verses first of Romans chapter 1, we, we begin with that therefore. And as we've already seen, that therefore connects us to the section, the previous section. Paul states it as a, as a fact. Therefore, since we've been justified through faith. So he is speaking positively to the Roman church, believing that the audience that is receiving this letter knows this already and has already put their faith in, in Christ. And he said, we've been justified by faith. That word translated justified is a word that was used in legal circus, circles. It, it, meant, it means to be acquitted. It, it means to declare righteous. It means to be put in right relationship with. And all of those, I believe, are at play as we think about this term in relationship to our standing with God. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him for righteousness. And when we, like Abraham, believe God, when we take God at his word, and when we believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins, that he rose again, we are put in right relationship with God. We're acquitted of our sinful state, as it were. And that is what it means, partially, to have peace with God. That word translated peace, very important word. In, in the, it's the Greek equivalent of a Hebrew word, a word that some of us, if we even don't know any Hebrew, somewhere or another we've heard this word, shalom. The Hebrew word shalom is their word for peace. But the idea of peace in these two words is more than just the absence of conflict. It's a more holistic term. It's a term that refers to the total well-being of the individual. It has more to do with the state of one's being. So in this sense, when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, when we are justified because of that, when we are acquitted, as it were, we are in a state of peace with God as opposed to a state of animosity with God. And, and what Paul leaves us here is this either-or statement. There's not really middle ground. Either you are at peace with God or you're not at peace with God. And the key point is, what do you say about Jesus? Someone has written, peace is a state of being that leads to relational harmony. True peace brings us this new relationship. But that relationship is furthermore 
granted to us by God's grace. Paul goes on, through whom we have gained access, I'm in verse 2, by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we boast in the hope and glory of God. We only come into this relationship because of God's grace. Remember, I closed out last week by reminding you of the late Dallas Willard's little phrase, grace is opposed to earning. We are, we, we kind of come in this idea that I have to earn everything I get. Uh, we're, we're past Christmas, but if someone gave you a Christmas gift that you were not expecting from them, isn't the phrase so often that comes out of us is, oh, but I didn't get you anything. And you know what? When it comes to grace, it's, oh, but I can't get you anything. There's nothing I can give to God to earn his grace. If I earned it, it wouldn't be grace. Several years ago, author Philip Yancey wrote a book that I believe is still worth reading, even though it's been out for quite a while. The title was, What's So Amazing About Grace? And, and it's stories of people who actually lived and showed grace. And at one point, he talks about a conference that happened back in the 1950s in Great Britain. Uh, and uh, it was a conference where there was a debate over uh, as to what, if anything, makes the Christian faith unique. Now, the great C.S. Lewis was actually at this conference. And so there was a group, they were talking back and forth, what makes Christian faith so different? And there were all kinds of ideas being shared. Yancey writes that eventually Lewis walked into the room and he asked, what's all the rumpus about? And they told him what they were trying to do. They were trying to ask, answer the question, what makes Christianity unique? And Lewis replied, oh, that's easy. It's grace. Yancey takes that and he concludes this. After some discussion, the conferees had to agree. The notion of God's love coming to us free of charge, no strings attached, seems to go against every instinct of humanity. The Buddhist Eightfold Path, the Hindu doctrine of karma, the Jewish covenant, the Muslim code of law, each of these offers a way to earn approval. Only Christianity dares to make God's love unconditional. We are declared righteous through faith. We are put in right standing with God in that standing of peace because of God's grace. And as a result, when we enter the faith relationship with God, we have this new relationship and this new understanding of life. And Paul tells us what that looks like beginning in verse 3. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This new understanding that comes out of this new relationship begins with hope. Hope in the Bible is more than a wish. You know, 
I hope the Bears made a good deal with their trades this last week. I hope the Cubs win the World Series again. Those are wishes. Hope in the Bible is not a wish. It's an expectation based on trust in the person and character of God. And Paul begins with this reality of hope. It begins back up in verse 2. Our confidence, our boasting is not in something we've done or achieved. It's in God and his work. And that hope, that trust, that expectation we have in who God is gives us an awareness that the difficulties in life can actually serve to do God's greater purposes. No one, no one is immune from suffering. The word that's translated suffering can mean pressure or trouble or sometimes even persecution. The reality is every one of us sitting here right now is facing some sort of pressure. It may be a pressure that we brought about. It may be a pressure that's been put upon us, but we're facing pressure. We all do that. No one's immune from it. And so often what our human tendency is, when I face trouble or pressure or suffering or struggles, I try to medicate the pain. I want to make it go away. I want to make it better. So I'll go shopping or I'll go play golf or I'll... I'll just close in and, and not go anywhere, and I'll, I'll just binge watch Netflix. All kinds of ways that we medicate the suffering, and yet the, we find here that the best path forward is to lean into the trouble and move through it. And that's what Paul says. He goes, hope does not put us, or he says, we glory in our sufferings. It's, it's not like, woohoo! It's these sufferings are being used by God, this pressure, because pressure, suffering, struggle, trial builds perseverance, endurance. My wife and I have a friend. She was a youth, a leader, youth leader with us many years ago. She just completed and actually has now this special thing. She has completed the world's major marathons. There are six marathons in the world that are called majors. And most recently, she completed the Tokyo Marathon, number six. You know, the furthest I want to run is from my house to the church. And that's, you know, but our friend worked hard and she did this. And, and I've read a lot. I, 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 at one time, I had this thought that I might want to run a marathon. Then I put away childish things. But... Uh, and they tell it at a certain point in the marathon, you hit what's called the wall of pain. And your whole body is aching. And every marathoner, even the elites, you hit that wall of pain. It's, it's about at the 20th mile, I think. I, I don't know if my, my, my uh, recollection is right there, but it's somewhere there. And, you, and the only way is to get through it. You run through through the wall of pain. That's what Paul is saying. Suffering produces endurance. So when we hit the walls of pain in life, we have what we need in God to move through them. But notice he goes on. In perseverance, character. The next thing that comes is, is character. We're strengthened. 
We're strengthened in our character, not by ease and comfort, but by going through difficult things, by pressures and struggle that lead to endurance. They build our character. Our character is shaped and formed through testing. We're more aware when we've gone through difficulties, we are much more aware and more understanding of others, and we can be that encourager that God wants us to, to be. Remember about a year ago, we worked through the book of Job. Remember Job in Job 23.10, as he was suffering, as he had lost everything, he says this, when he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. Diamonds are beautiful and they're captivating, but they are formed through pressure. And note how Paul brings this full circle. We, he says, we glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. My expectations, my confidence in God grows as I've gone through difficult times because that character that, brings, that comes out of that difficulty brings me back to the fact that God is there when I've gone through the difficulty and I emerge on the other side and I look around, there's one constant. God is still there. And Paul says, hope does not put us to shame. Just camp on that for a minute. Some of us have been shamed shamed awfully by the words or even just the scathing look of others. God is not a God of shame. Hope does not put us to shame. It does not leave us embarrassed. It does not leave us feeling like we're nothing. It does not, the other word could be, it does not disgrace us. It does not disappoint us because of the object of our hope. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who he's given to us. In the midst of your trials, in the midst of your struggles, in the midst of your difficulties, God continues pouring his love into you, abiding with you through the constant presence of the Holy Spirit, indwelling those who believe. And that's the power of that relationship we have with God, and we have that new relationship with him, we see things differently. I spent a lot of my life in farming country, whether it was in Kansas or in Indiana, and there's farming stories all over. Story is told of a young pastor who, back in the day, pastor in a little rural community, went out to visit one of the old farmers who was going to have breakfast with him. And he asked the old farmer if he would say grace for the breakfast. So the young pastor bows his head, and the farmer bows his head, and he starts out, Lord, I hate buttermilk. The pastor's kind of like, well, what have I got? What are, what, what are we doing here? And he waits, and the farmer goes on, Lord, I hate lard. And then the farmer continues, and Lord... You know how much I don't care for raw white flour. The pastor's like thinking, I need to find an exit. The farmer goes on. But Lord, when you mix all of them together and you bake them, I do love warm biscuits. 
So, Lord, when things come up that we don't like, when life gets hard, when we don't understand what you're saying to us, help us just to wait till you're done mixing. And it will probably be better than biscuits. Amen. Let's eat. I don't like trials. I don't like suffering. I don't like difficulties. But I know God uses them. And when I have this new relationship with him that is called peace with God through Jesus Christ, I can understand those things. True peace with God is characterized by a new relationship. But in verses 5 through 8, we find that true peace with God is characterized by a new appreciation. I think these three, core, these three verses here, four verses here, are the core to our understanding God's work at this point in Romans. Paul says, verse 5, or verse 6, you see just at the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. What, a, what an important word, when we were powerless, when we had nothing spiritually, when we had no ability to do anything to create, to come into a right relationship with God, when we were powerless, Christ died for the ungodly, for the sacrilegious. That's what the word ungodly means. You, we already mentioned it. Look back at Romans 3, and all of humanity has sinned. All of humanity has fallen short. But, but Christ died for us. Very, and and um, Paul says this. He says, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person some might possibly dare to die. You know, we, we talk about our heroes, right, who, who make the ultimate sacrifice. And, and Paul says, that's so rare. And, and yet it, it's, so, it's so rare that we honor it. We have a middle school in our district just down the road on Manchester Road. It's called Monroe Middle School. It was not named after the fifth president of the United States. It was named... From a, for a young man who graduated from what was then Wheaton Central High School. His name was James Howard Monroe. He enlisted in the Army and went to Vietnam. On February 16, 1967, as a medic in Vietnam, tending to wounded, wounded soldiers, in a moment, James Howard Monroe saw a grenade land right in the middle of where he and his so soldiers were, and he, without thinking, dove and buried that grenade with his body and absorbed the blast. He gave his life to protect his squad, received the Medal of Honor. Paul says that's rare. That's rare regarding good people. But look at the contrast. God demonstrates, and, and the language is such as you could say, God is demonstrating. It's not something that just happened once. God continues to demonstrate his love as we look back on the event of the cross. But God demonstrates or continues to demonstrate his own love in this. While we were still sinners, while we were actively at odds with God. While we were enemies of God, Christ died for us. 
God's love is so great that he doesn't just tell you about it. He proves it by sending Jesus to die for people who actively refuse to love him. That's what we remember at communion. God's great love. God's unconditional love. God's love demonstrated to humanity that was actively against him. True peace with God is characterized by new relationship. It's characterized by new appreciation. And true peace with God is characterized by a new understanding. We'll pick it up in verse 9. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Paul gives this nod back to the beginning of the section. We've been justified by the blood of Jesus, and we're now saved from the wrath of God. And we talked about the wrath of God back in chapter 1. Remember, we reminded you that wrath is not just this anger and this rage. It is a divine response to evil. It's a divine response to sin. God's character will not allow sin to go unpunished. God's character knows that sin has to be dealt with. And it was dealt with when Christ paid the ultimate price by dying on the cross for your sins and for mine. Paul reminds us when we were enemies, we were still sinners. The death of Christ reconciled us to God. To reconcile means to bring two parties that were opposed to one another back together. And reconciliation requires efforts on a human standpoint, requires both parties to come back together. But God does something interesting. He makes the offer of reconciliation by giving his son to pay for our debt. And our part in the reconciliation is just to receive the gift. It's not something we earn or can produce. We just receive the gift. Through the death of Christ, we have the indwelling reality, the Holy Spirit. And we have this amazing friendship with God. And that friendship is not just a future reality. It's real. It's now. It's today. Through Jesus, all of the barriers that would stand in the way between you and me and God, all of the barriers that would keep us from a deep and satisfying relationship with God, they're all removed. No matter what we face, we can have a quiet confidence that God is there, and we can grow to learn that God is enough. Paul says, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him. He reconciled us to him. I read a description years ago by a journalist, a journalist who did not profess to have any religion, and the journalist was just <laughs> describing his observations of humanity. And, and he described it this way, which I thought was unique. He said, it seems like as humans, 
We all have this insatiable hole in our lives and we've tried to, to fill it with so many things. We try to fill it with money and we try to fill it with experiences and we try to fill it with material things and, and, and all it does is it swallows them up and it leaves us still with no meaning. It seems we live in a culture that tells us we never have enough. I have a computer, a laptop that I use. It's about four years old. It still works great. The experts tell me I probably ought to be replacing it in another year. Every five years you're supposed to replace your laptop because of all the changes and everything. I have a cell phone in my pocket that's about two years old. It's about five models behind now, you know, because our culture just keeps wanting to, to do that. My eye doctor would love it if every time, if every year when I go for my annual checkup, I would get new frames because that's where they really make their money is on the frames. And, and they want me to get the designer frames because they fit my face and all of that. They're just glasses, but, but they want you to do that every year. You know, we've, we've had our truck for almost four years now. Six months after we bought our truck, I was getting notices from the Ford dealership that I could trade my truck in for the next model. You know, it's like, that, that's, that's, you got a good truck. I mean, it's just like, we live in a consumer culture that's built on discontent. Romans 5 helps me to live counterculture if I truly believe it. It tells me that my peace is not going to be found in my stuff. I love some of my stuff. I, I do like my truck. Uh, I, it's, it's wonderful. I love driving it, but it, there's no peace in that. One day I'm going to go out. To, well, one day I did go out to start it, and it wouldn't start. I had to replace the battery. It let me down. One day I'll have to trade it in. One day I might not even be able to drive anymore. My peace can't be in that stuff. It's in that state of being in peace with God through Jesus Christ that comes a deep contentment. That contentment helps me face difficulties because I know that as I go through those pressures in my life, some of those pressures I created, some of those pressures I did not create, but in the, in the middle of both of them, God says, I'm still with you. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. Now, I know that. I know that God is with me, and I know that God's going to use those difficulties to help me get stronger. And as I get stronger, God says, I'm going to build things into your character that you didn't even know you needed, but I know that you need them. And in that character that God builds in me, my confidence grows not in me. The, more, the older I get, the less I realize I know. But my confidence isn't in me. My confidence is in the God of the universe who says, I walk with you. You see, in that relationship I have, that's a relationship that I have, it's called peace with God. I know I'm loved. And I know that love is real and it's eternal and it's unconditional. I know I'm accepted. You see, God accepts me for who I am because while I was still a sinner, while I was still unacceptable to him, he said, I'll make it right. 
I know I have a future. And I know that I did not earn or deserve any of this. But it's a gift of God through Jesus Christ. Romans 5, 1 to 11 is for you and me who've already chosen to believe it. Because it gives us the divine confidence we need to live today. Romans 5, 1 through 11 is for anybody who wonders about God because it's a reminder that a relationship with God is available to all today by putting their faith in Jesus Christ. Romans 5, 1 to 11 is the essence of true peace. Do you have peace with God? Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for these reminders. Thank you, Lord, for the, the wisdom and the ability that you gave to the Apostle Paul to be able to have the training, the discernment, uh, the spiritual input to be able to do these things, to write these things. Thank you for the Holy Spirit who carried him along. And thank you for the opportunity we now have to hear your word and to respond to your word. May today be a day in which we look around and realize we do have and we can have true peace with you. In Jesus' name.